2: With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream.
0: Connect the snooze. connecting changes everything AT&T
3: welcome to stuff to blow your mind a production of iHeartRadio
1: hey welcome to stuff to blow your mind my name is Robert Lamb and I'm Joe McCormick And for a couple of episodes, maybe more, we're not sure how these things ultimately uh, fall together, uh, but we're going to be talking about how humans discovered and ultimately colonized uh, the the Polynesian islands, places we know today as um, uh, the islands of Hawaii, uh, Easter Island, New Zealand, Tonga, Samoa, Tahiti, the Cook Islands, Fiji, uh, Tuvalu, and more. So in in our information and intercontinental travel age, though, I feel like these names may seem very familiar and known, even though they might be places that we also paradoxically know are very far away from us. We may know that they are, in, in many cases, you know, vastly uh, separated from other islands. Uh, but just because we can pull up pictures of them, just because we know we could book a flight to one of these if we so desired, uh, they may seem closer. They may The world may seem smaller than it actually is, you know? There's a very limited way of imagining what
0: planet Earth is where, you know, you you say, okay, somebody picture the Earth and, and what do people picture? I think they probably picture looking down at some continental part of the Earth, maybe seeing mountain ranges, maybe seeing the Sahara Desert or something. But often people picture Land, right? They picture the continents. But if you look at Earth from space, what it's really characterized by is ocean. Ocean covers most of the Earth's surface. And there's one ocean in particular that really takes the cake it's the Pacific Ocean.
1: Yeah, yeah. But but I definitely wanted to drive home just how large the territory is we're talking about here. And when we're talking about uh, the colonization of this region, we're not talking about European colonization. We're talking about the original human sailors who departed from Asia and gradually settled the remainder of the world, uh, setting off into the unknown, uh, but then also depending uh, on navigation. uh, Some really fascinating navigation techniques that we'll get into in order to uh, to to chart this region. So yeah, when you look at at a map of the globe, uh, it depends on how you're looking at it, right? You t- if you're you're taking a very um, uh, North America centric version and a very North America centric globe, you're like, all right, well, well there, there's the Earth. It's mostly us. It's mostly North America. Uh, but you turn it around, you, uh, you you turn it to the Pacific side, and you're looking at a water world, uh, a true water world. You're, you're t- looking at a side of the globe that is. Uh, almost all Pacific Ocean, because the Pacific Ocean is just simply enormous. It's the largest and the deepest of Earth's oceans. We're talking 63,800,000 square miles. That's approximately 165,250,000 square kilometers. And it takes up yeah, one third of Earth's surface or 30 percent of it, depending on who's doing the calculation. It contains the deepest parts of the oceans, and it contains more than half of the world's open water supply. Specifically, within the
0: uh, the realm of of Polynesia and Micronesia, these these subdivisions of parts of Oceania, which is the you know the region of the Pacific containing the Pacific Islands where people live, um, there in this part of the world, there's an author named David Lewis whose book I'm going to refer to throughout these episodes. Uh, but there's a part of his book where he says that if you exclude New Zealand within Polynesia and Micronesia, there are two parts land to every one thousand parts water. Uh, so this is this is an area characterized almost entirely by water, but polka dotted with these little hubs of land throughout.
1: Yeah, v- various far flung islands that that people were able to to eventually colonize and and, and make their home. And it's yeah, it's, it's fascinating how, again, I've, I've been to I've been fortunate enough to, to travel to uh, you know, say the, some of the Hawaiian islands and you get there and, you know, they're, they're amazing. But but like I don't have the experience of. Of just the open Pacific, of of the of the, the many places, the, the the majority of the the places in the Pacific Ocean where there is no sight of land, where there is only the open water. Now, you don't have to be deep
0: into uh, historical theories of human migration to grasp the question of like looking at all these islands in the Pacific, seeing how far away they are from each other, how, how small a a percent of the area of the Pacific ocean, the islands represent and notice how many of them are populated by people and wonder how on earth did that happen? How did people find and settle on all of these tiny islands in this vast ocean?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating question. One that, one that we're still exploring to this day, we're still figuring out. Uh, but, we're going to be getting in a little bit more into the history of it and certainly into the the navigational techniques, the amazing ways that these uh, these ancient uh, sailors uh, made their way across the open ocean uh, but uh, first of all let's let 's go ahead and just drive home that while while human colonization of the pacific islands is is one of the most recent. Uh, human migration movements in our history, it, it still retains you know, more than a few mysteries. Uh, and using everything from traditional histories and linguistic analysis to climate models and genetics, researchers are still continuing to try and figure out exactly how this migration occurred, when it uh, occurred, uh, where, uh, uh, you know, where, uh, where we went, where humans uh, uh, migrated to uh, first in this and so we're, we're going to be dealing with some tentative dates here as we, we roll through like, the basic story of human migration across the Pacific. So according to Linda Noreen Schaefer in Maritime Southeast Asia to 500, this was a book that came out in 1995, the ancestors of Malayo Polynesians left the mainland to settle um, the island of Taiwan around 4000 BCE. And from there, they moved into what is now the Philippines and Indonesia. And then during the third millennium BC, they moved on to settle the islands uh, uh, and, and peninsulas of what Schaefer refers to as Southeast Asia's maritime realm. And the people who remained there came to be known as the Malays. So from here, we see movement of these same peoples further out into the ocean, uh, the very movement of human migration that would eventually become uh, the Polynesians. By 1500 BCE, they had reached as far as the Bismarck Archipelago northeast of New Guinea. And... um, and Schaefer writes that within a few centuries they had spread to West Polynesia, that's uh, Fiji, Tonga, Samoa, and Polynesian sailors, explorers, and colonists continued. And eventually re, uh, they eventually reached and colonized the far more remote eastward islands of Hawaii, um, what is now New Zealand, and uh, what we have also come to refer to as Easter Island or uh, Rapa Nui. All right, so now let's try and put some dates on all of this. Uh, but, of course, all of this is is, uh, is playing out over a long period of time, and it's still an area of ongoing study and discussion. So these dates are tentative. In Schaefer's 1995 work, some of the estimated dates she cites include uh, Rapa Nui around 500 CE, although estimates seem uh, – I've seen estimates that suggest as early as 300 CE. And then uh, in 1999, the University of Hawaii's Dennis um, Kawaharada suggested the following dates. He says, okay, hunters and gatherers inhabited Australia and New Guinea by 50,000 years ago, and then around... Uh, between 1600 and 1200 BCE, a cultural complex called uh, Lapita had spread from New Guinea in uh, Melanesia to as uh, far east as Fiji, Samoa and Tonga. And then Polynesian culture developed at the eastern edge of this region. And then he says that around 300 BCE or earlier, seafarers from Samoa and Tonga discovered in settled islands to the east, what are known now as the, the Cook Islands, uh, Tahiti Nui, uh, Tuamotos and Hiva. And then, around 300 CE or earlier, voyagers from Central or Eastern Polynesia discovered and settled Easter Island. And then, around 400 CE or earlier, voyagers from the Cook Islands, Tahiti, Nua, and Orheva settled Hawaii. And then, around 1,000 CE or earlier, he wrote that the voyagers from the Society Islands and/or the Cook Islands uh, settled what is now New Zealand. Now, again, these are just tentative dates. Um, They're you know, there's been a lot of other work. For instance, according to the University of Hawaii at Manoa, anthropologist Terry Hunt, and this is uh, via um, com, which we'll, re- we'll refer back to that website some more in the future. Uh, they were part of a radiocarbon study looking at artifacts from the island, and they adjusted some of the suggested timelines based on that work, ultimately arguing for a more rapid and recent colonization of the outer islands. Specifically, he proposed Samoa, around 800 BCE, uh, the Central so- Society Islands between 1025 and 1120 CE, and dispersal into New Zealand, Hawaii, and Rapa Nui, and other locations between 1190 and 1290 CE. Um, and i have seen 1200 CE is sometimes cited as the most recent possibility for Rapa Nui colonization. And so, yeah, I know we're hitting everyone with a lot of dates here. I, I highly suggest Going out on your own and, and finding some of these sources and, and pouring over them in more detail if you want to get, get a clear picture of how this is going. There are also some wonderful visual aids depicting, uh, you know, exactly how uh, these uh, waves of migration might have looked. Uh, and I, I'm always fascinated by those, uh, even though, they, you know, they often change. Again, they're subject to the same uh, uh, level of change that we see with some of the possible dates for arrivals and colonizations, et cetera and again it's a very exciting area of study and you'll you'll see papers arguing for the for for other things as well the likes of south american and even antarctic contact by various polynesian peoples <laughs> um and uh, And i it's my understanding I didn't go deep into some of those. I think some of those are, are are kind of controversial or some of the and certainly some of the evidence is maybe not as as solid, but it, just to give you an idea of where some of the the research is going today and what people are looking at uh, but- re- regardless of the the exact dates, you know we can't discount the wonder and accomplishment. Uh, of the whole scenario, you know, that this this was this last age of true human um, exodus, true human discovery and colonization, Uh, visiting places, that humans had never been before uh, creating a, a, a foothold of human civilization in places that had belonged only, um, you know, to various animals before and in the case of uh, the Hawaiian Islands, places where the uh, no mammals had ever arrived there that had not flown or swam through the seas. You know, you had to have wow. been a bat or a seal. I, I, I want to read a quote from um, from the University of Hawaii's Dennis uh, Kalaharada here, for, uh, in which he 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 really sums a lot of this up. Um, and again, this is from the, that um, Hokulea website at hokulea.com. That's h-o-k-u-l-e-a.com. Uh, he writes, quote, the Polynesian migration to Hawaii was part of one of the most remarkable achievements of humanity, the discovery and settlement of the remote, widely scattered islands of the Central Pacific. The migration began before the birth of Christ, while Europeans were sailing close to the coastlines of continents before developing navigational instruments that would allow them to venture out into the open ocean. Voyagers from Fiji, Tonga, and Samoa began to settle islands in an ocean area of over 10 million square miles. The settlement took a thousand years to complete and involved finding and fixing in mind the position of islands, sometimes less than a mile in diameter, on, uh, on which the highest landmark was a coconut tree. By the time European explorers entered the Pacific Ocean in the 16th century, almost all the habitable islands had been settled for hundreds of years. It's truly remarkable. Yeah, especially when, I mean, you get beyond the exact timelines and you start looking at how they traveled and how they navigated um, and what these islands were like when they found them. Uh, we're going to be, you know, we're going to get into more, more into the navigation models um, either later in this episode or in the next, uh, but as uh, Kawaharada points out, we're, we're talking about voyages conducted entirely in canoes made from wood and coconut fiber, constructed with tools made from bone, rock, and coral. They used sails woven from coconut or, uh, or pandana sleeves, and when no wind was available, they paddled. And these were dangerous voyages as well, not only uh, at open sea, but when you arrived on some of these places. It's easy to imagine this sort of stereotypical like Paradise Island Uh, you know, vision where, okay, you've reached Mm. the island. The dangerous part is done. Now you're in this place. It's lush and full of life, Uh, but that's not (laughs) like there's just a buffet set out for you when you get there. Yeah. Like there's going to be, you know, a bunch of, uh, of, of animals ready for the picking. And, you know, there, there, if you get into the specifics, there are some cases where there's some sort of, 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 of of natural, uh, naturally occurring animal on that Island or in the waters around it that are Mm -hmm. perhaps uh, easier pickings. But in other cases, you're dealing with environments where again, like they're are just no mammals. they are no large meaty birds. Uh, you know they're they're desolate. they in some cases it was very difficult for humans to you know find the resources they needed to survive unless they of course brought them with them on voyages, which adds this other wrinkle to these uh, to these voyages that you would have to bring things like uh, pigs, chickens, etc. Though at the same time, I want to drive home that there's no one island environment here. There's a wide variety in the sorts of islands and island environments you encounter across this vast region. Uh, So the story is going to be a little different each time. Right. So, again, in many cases, they had to bring uh, important plant or animal species with them, which, of course, is the same story you see in land-based migration, except with the challenges of, of an open boat. And so you'd end up with this first wave of invasive species on the island. And these are often called canoe plants and canoe animals because, again, that's how they reach their destinations. And ultimately, we're talking you know, dogs, pigs, chickens, but also plants such as sugarcane, banana, coconut, taro, and bamboo So some of these plants that are so uh, you know, linked in the mind and linked culturally to these islands that, uh, that you have to remind yourself that they were not always there. They were brought with them, with the, the people who settled these islands.
0: Yeah. Though personally, right now, my mind is fixated on the idea of having to uh, make long sea voyages with like a canoe full of chickens.
1: <laughs> yeah, but it, it was done. And, uh, and as we'll get into much later, you know, in order to prove that these voyages were possible, they had to do things like bring animals with them on the, the test voyages. So uh, it's, it's fascinating. Now, on this topic of, of the, the environments on these different islands and how they weren't fully stocked, uh, life-nourishing buffets, I thought that, uh, that David Lewis made an excellent point in that book that you, you mentioned briefly earlier.
0: Oh, yeah. So to name this book, I'm going to be referring to it throughout these episodes. It's one I've been reading that is a a seminal work in the history of studies of Pacific Island navigation. And this was originally published by the University of Hawaii Press in 1972. It was by a medical doctor, sailor and scholar named David Lewis, and it's called We the Navigators, the ancient art of land finding in the Pacific. Uh, It was published in 72, but I think updated with some Subsequent editions, at least in 1994, and it may have gone through other editions since then. But this is a really interesting book because it studies traditional Pacific navigation and land finding techniques, not just by the, the indirect evidence of trying to like look at the history, but actually by putting them to direct experiments. So uh, navigating with experienced uh, master navigators from various Pacific islands and studying their techniques firsthand –
1: yeah. Yeah. And and the point that, that Lewis makes about the stark environments was really neat because it meant that the dangerous voyage to get to these islands and establish yourself on these islands, you it didn't mean that you could stop in many cases. You would have to keep making voyages because there were certain resources that you could not get at the new island. Uh, but were worth the dangerous journey to acquire. Uh, the example that that Lewis brings up is the lack of hard stone on the Cook Island of Puka Puka, requiring journeys to take place uh, to islands where hard stone could be acquired for use in vital tool construction. And uh, he writes that these would have been complex trading cycles that would have also been influenced by, uh, you know, other human factors like the sense of, you know, the the desire for adventure, the um, and also the the necessity of exile, which I found interesting. Uh, Like ultimately, the idea of having a, a complex culture and cultural dynamics on a single island. You know, what what where do you send people? Where do people run to? Uh, if, if, there, if there's some sort of political turmoil on the island. So contact uh, sometimes remains in place because of that as well. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
0: Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
2: Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all.
1: Now, before we get into the specifics of uh, of, of navigation in uh, among Pacific Islanders and the, the, the colonizing of Polynesia, I thought we might briefly touch on some of the basics of sailing and navigation as larger trends in human technology. Um, we could easily do a proper, you know, even multi episode invention episode about ships. But here are some of the key dates provided in The Seventy Great Inventions of the Ancient World by Brian Fagan et al. Um, a book I refer to I refer to a lot because uh, it's really good. And again, mm-hmm. I highly recommend people pick up a copy of it. Um, but uh, Fagan and the various co-authors that he worked on with the various uh, sailing and ship uh, based chapters points out that seagoing watercraft just in general dates back probably before 40,000 BCE in Southeast Asia and Indonesia. We see longboats from Neanderthal cultures from 7200 BCE, and we see log rafts from 7th century BCE in Mesopotamia. Again, these are just general dates based on some of the earliest evidence we have. And then as far as things like uh, plank boats, uh, that goes back to like 3000 BCE in Egypt. Um, And then finally, we get up to the frame first boats in the 2nd and 3rd century CE in in what is now uh, uh, England. And as far as sailing, we have depictions of sails from 3100 BCE in Egypt. We see two masted ships from the 6th century in BC, uh, BCE in Egypt, and the oldest surviving sail comes from the 2nd century BCE in, in Egypt. Uh, but again, these are just some of the oldest uh, di- you know, direct evidence that we have or de- depictions, uh, descriptions, etc. As Fagan points out in the section on navigation with Sean McGrail, author of Boats of the World and Professor of Maritime Archaeology, the earliest voyages for our ancestors would have remained within sight of land. Landmarks and sea marks would have been key to navigation. And we see this reflected in recorded traditions in classical and medieval sailing manuals. Makes sense, right? I mean, it's like if, if any of us were to set out on a boat into the water, I would want to keep land in sight. I would need to know where that land is. So all of this early, uh, you know, oceanic activity would have taken place within sight of land. And it would have depended upon things you could notice on land. Uh, you know, your frame of reference, reference was based on the place you came from. Sure. But what happens when you leave sight of land? Well, by the mid uh, second millennium BCE, sailors in the South Pacific were, of course, doing this by means of what we call environmental navigation. Uh, We'll be getting into this at length. But, you know, at this point, you will have to travel beyond dependence on coastal landmarks and sea marks. But that doesn't mean that there's not an order and language to the open ocean. And for those who had the wisdom and the observational skills of the accumulated knowledge of their ancestors, they could plot their way by these cues. They could recognize them. They could read the map of the ocean. Now, we'll get into uh, the details of this in a bit, but as Fagan and McGrail point out, you'll find indirect references to environmental navigation methodologies in Homer's The Odyssey, as well as in the medieval text of the life of St. Brendan. And environmental navigation would have been used in some form worldwide by the first millennium CE, and that's when instruments began to pop up. That's when we begin to use these various technological things to help us uh, uh, make our way across the open water. But with the navigators of the Pacific Islands, we're talking again about peak. Environmental navigation, a level of of advancement that exceeded anything else in the rest of the world, anything else that the rest of the world was capable of or had been capable of, Um, awing some of the first Europeans to encounter such techniques. And for a while, seeming simply impossible to some Western minds, Uh, you know, that for for a while, it just seemed impossible that, oh, the, the people who are, you know, that live in these islands, they must be here by accident. They must be here by mistake. And they're merely survivors of the ocean they're not masters of its navigation Uh, but as we'll get to they were they were the masters that's exactly right and that's actually one of the main points that david
0: lewis makes in this book we the navigators Um, he was responding in some ways to kind of trends in scholarship on the uh on the settlement of the pacific islands That had tended to say that, well, a a large number of these islands must have just been settled and discovered by accident, right? That maybe uh, fishermen or traders were out at sea and they became lost. They drifted off course. And just by happenstance, they drifted to new islands that hadn't been settled before. And then having discovered them, those islands could be settled Of course, it is possible that some islands were discovered this way, but Lewis pushes back, arguing that there's actually a a pretty good evidence for a a program of deliberate exploration and very accurate navigation by the sailors of the time to to locate islands and, and settle them. So maybe actually it's time to uh, introduce this book more fully that I've been reading because I wanted to mention a number of things that he talks about in it. So uh, again, the book is called We the Navigators, the Ancient Art of Land Finding in the Pacific. It was first published in 1972. And the author, David Lewis, was, uh, as I said, he was a medical doctor. He was an experienced amateur sailor. So he had participated in, like, uh, you know, yacht races and things like that. And a scholar. He was born in England, but he was raised in New Zealand and Rarotonga in the Cook Islands in the South Pacific. And Lewis had been a sailing and kayaking enthusiast for much of his life. He had done some competitive sailing, including a transatlantic single-handed yacht race in 1960, and at least one circumnavigation of the globe in a catamaran. And inspired by his experiences with long sea voyages in small boats and his love of Polynesian culture since his childhood, in the 1960s he got a grant from Australian National University to study traditional Polynesian navigation techniques that did not rely on charts or scientific instruments. And he did this research by learning directly from several older Polynesian sailors and master navigators, experimenting firsthand uh, with voyages across the Pacific with these navigators at the helm or experimenting with what they taught him. And uh, so there are three basic sources of non-documentary information that he talks about. Uh, so one is uh, shore-based instruction on ancient navigation techniques from knowledgeable navigators in the Carolinians, the Santa Cruz Reef Islanders, and two groups of Tycopians, uh Naningo Islanders, Gilbertese, and Tongans. And then he also gets instruction during navigation itself uh, on his yacht known as the Isbjorn which is uh, under the command of two older master navigators who helped him with his research. One is a man named Tevake of the Santa Cruz Reef Islands, and another uh, is named Hippoor of Pulawat in the Carolines. And I like the approach here because actually uh, he opens his book by talking about the fact that understanding indigenous navigation of the Pacific has been really held back by what he calls an overly theoretical approach. Uh, You know, just people trying to uh look at indirect evidence to understand how the navigation happened rather than doing firsthand voyages with the navigators
1: themselves yeah without without actually diving into the uh the accumulated knowledge of these cultures on navigation in some cases so there's a lot of interesting stuff about this book
0: Uh, one of the interesting things he mentions early on is he says when he was growing up in polynesia he says to his elder polynesian cousins uh, the ocean, quote, w- was a homely and not unfriendly place. And th- that's interesting because it, I mean, obviously, as a, a landlubber like me thinks the idea of voyaging out on the ocean in a canoe is like inherently just sounds terrifying, right? Mm-hmm. But to some extent, that is cultural. That's like because I'm not used to the idea. And to people that have a culture of of long ocean voyages in small watercraft like these canoes and catamarans. Uh, it's it's not necessarily such a scary thing. I mean, of course, ocean voyages do always involve dangers, but under the guidance of these long-tested ancient navigational techniques, if you know what you're doing and you know where you're going, it is actually not necessarily a scary thing to do. In fact, it could be a a sort of joyful part of your culture. But on the other hand, thinking about the ocean as a, a homely and not unfriendly place, this might cause you to assume that spending a lot of time at sea would would make ancient Pacific Islanders have a kind of intuitive feel for ocean navigation that couldn't be put into words, the same way that you have for a lot of skills you have. You know, there are a lot of things that if you do them enough and you get good at them, you know what to do and you can do it well, but you couldn't necessarily explain to somebody else why you're doing what you're doing. Right. But Lewis strongly resists this type of characterization about Pacific Island navigation. Uh, He says it's in fact the exact opposite. Uh, He writes, quote, one further notable feature of what we were told and had shown to us was that never once did anyone lay claim to any form of, quote, sixth sense a navigator had reason to believe that land lay over the horizon because he had observed certain signs that told him so, not on account of some vague intuition. And I think this is a really important point to hammer home about how ancient Pacific Island navigation worked. It wasn't that you got a feel for it and then you just instinctively knew what to do. It was based on knowledge and well-calibrated external signs. And so I think that means it it probably makes more sense to think of ancient Pacific navigation as more of a science than an art. You're not just getting a feel for things and relying on your intuition, but referencing specific markers and indicators of your position, though these markers might be mostly invisible to people who didn't know exactly what to look for.
1: Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, right? The the, the science, you would need the science to get there because the 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 ocean is ultimately unforgiving. You know, if you were just going on a gut instinct, you might you might be right some of the time, but if you get it really wrong once, then uh, you might not be coming back to shore.
0: Exactly. And that really comes through uh, in studying these techniques. It is based on specific markers, specific pieces of knowledge, specific cues in the environment. And a major point of of Lewis's book is how accurate these specific techniques and external markers were in the hands of a a master Pacific navigator who knew what they were doing. Um, he, He writes that navigators of Polynesia and Micronesia seem to employ basically all of the same techniques with only slight variations. He says the only major differences were the features of local geography, because a lot of these um, methods of navigation do rely on knowing where specific islands in the area you're navigating are. Uh, So that would be different depending on what island groups you're sailing between, but otherwise the techniques are extremely similar. And he says that uh, throughout uh, Polynesia and Micronesia, he said that the techniques were employed basically with the same level of effectiveness measured by the accuracy at landfall, which in general was highly accurate, especially astonishingly accurate for not using uh, tools and equipment that are available to 20th century navigators. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
2: Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Now I wanted to come back to a fact I already mentioned once earlier, but it's this astonishing figure that that Lewis gives, talking about the world of the Polynesians and the Micronesians, uh, saying that they they inhabit a world of ocean. Again, if you exclude New Zealand, this area of the globe has two parts land to every one thousand parts water. Wow! And then he mentions something about this that I thought was really interesting. He writes, quote. Ocean spaces can inhibit contact, though terrestrial features like mountain ranges may do so equally, but they become highways rather than barriers as marine technology, especially navigation, becomes effective.
1: Mm.
0: I had never thought about that before, but I think that's exactly right. So you can have various barriers to travel and communication between different regions and cultures. But whereas a mountain on land is always a barrier, you know, even if you build a road through it, the mountain will still slow you down. You know, making a road through it just makes it sort of less of a barrier. Mm -hmm. The ocean is something that can transition from a brick wall to a super highway. Once you have the, the skill and the knowledge and the technology of, uh, to figure out where you're going and, and how to get there, and, and you have the right kind of watercraft, the ocean turns into the most efficient method of travel in the world.
1: Yeah, that's an excellent point.
0: Now, there's one thing that has made studying uh, Pacific Islander navigation more difficult than it might otherwise be, which is that in many of these societies, or maybe all of them, and definitely most of them, uh, navigational lore seems to have been something that was often kept secret and only shared with a small group of initiated experts. So it wasn't just that everybody in a, in a Micronesian or Polynesian society knew how to navigate uh, on the open ocean, but that you would have sort of a class of educated navigators who would have this, this lore about how to get from place to place within their brains and would be passed on to the next generation of navigators. But it wouldn't be general knowledge that was shared by everyone.
1: Yeah, and I think that'll make even more sense as we get into some of the details of, say, navigating by stars and what that entailed. You realize mm-hmm. that this required specialized training and a specialized eye, and not everybody was going to necessarily be cut out for it, and it wouldn't make sense for everyone to, to invest this level of time and energy into the understanding of it.
0: Right. And it's interesting. I, I, I don't know exactly what all of the pressures leading to it being a sort of specialized bit of, of exclusive lore um, among a special class of, of navigators would be. I mean, there might have been economic concerns keeping it mm-hmm. contained that way, or it might have just been sort of you know the, the difficulty of training people to, to have all of this knowledge in their head. I, I'm not quite sure, but that's an interesting question as well. Now, there's another thing that Lewis gets into in his book, uh, which I thought was really interesting about, you know, again, when you just look at the problem of, you look at a map of the Pacific Ocean, and you think, how could it be possible to navigate you know th- these vast distances without you know, uh, modern scientific types of equipment or, or charts and that kind of thing? And, uh, and there is one aspect of it that helps make the problem seem more comprehensible, and it's this. Lewis writes that it is possible quote, to sail to almost all the inhabited islands of Oceania from Southeast Asia without once making a sea crossing longer than 310 miles. The only exceptions are Easter Island, Hawaii, and New Zealand, though the most predictable routes between eastern and western Polynesia are also long. Such isolated lands apart, the majority of gaps between islands and even archipelagos are well under 310 miles, and usually in the 50 to 200 mile range. Since no one wants to cross more open ocean than necessary, it follows that most passages were of this order. So, if you know your Pacific geography and you know where the islands are and how to navigate to them, the problem of crossing the vast ocean actually can sometimes be decomposed into many smaller journeys between islands. And the vast Pacific Ocean problem can be broken up into a kind of stepping stone pattern. Uh, However, this does not mean that ancient Pacific Islanders were incapable of longer sea voyages. They were not, and sometimes they did make them. Now, coming back to the idea that uh, Lewis pushes back against that many of the islands of the Pacific would have been settled initially through random drifts of people uh, who, who found new islands by accident while drifting about after you know becoming lost or something like that. Uh, Lewis pushes back against that, and one line of evidence he cites is computer simulations of human spread and settlement uh, through random drifts. He writes of this subject, quote, Contrary to expectations, the results showed that, while accidental advent upon a number of island groups was likely, drifts could not account for certain crucial contact stages. These were virtually impossible except as exploratory probes and subsequent deliberately mounted ventures. The probability of drifts occurring was negligible or zero across the following seaways, Western Melanesia to Fiji, Eastern Polynesia to Hawaii, New Zealand, or Easter Island, Eastern Polynesian contact with the Americas in either direction. The probability of there having been drifts from Western to Eastern Polynesia and from Western Polynesia to the Marquesas zone was very low. And so here Lewis is arguing that not only were uh, were the navigators of the ancient Pacific Islands able to travel uh, with with great accuracy between known islands and island groups that they also appear to have mounted these deliberate, intentional, exploratory ventures into new waters to find islands that had not yet been discovered. And, of course, in doing so, uh, would have the knowledge to be able to locate these islands again upon, you know, going back home and then returning, mm-hmm. which, again, is astounding.
1: Yeah, yeah, simply astounding. And it, it, I, I think a lot of the, these the counter ideas the ideas yeah that the, these had to be accidents these you know these people the, people couldn't possibly have set out and discovered these i mean it's such a i guess a, a, a landsman approach you know mm. uh based on a you know it's the, the kind of analysis that, a, that a, a culture that is that is more situated on the land and and does not view the ocean as the majority of the world or their world i keep coming back to this uh analysis that for for instance the 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 polynesians most of the world was ocean yeah and and, and generally that's not the sort of worldview you encounter with um with, with with western civilizations now certainly you have certain you know civilizations and cultures within those civilizations that are more uh nautical and more uh de- dependent on maritime traditions uh but but even then it's 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 often the case that they are they're more attached to the land they're closer to the continent and uh, in these cases we're we're dealing with 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 islands within just a vast world of water
0: now there's one big question that uh lewis also addresses in his book which is the question of what happened to so much of this this ancient pacific navigational knowledge right mm-hmm. uh, clearly some people in the 20th century still possess it but this seems to have become increasingly rare Uh, And you could easily blame the import of foreign navigation equipment and techniques by other cultures, right? So if you have brought in charts and compasses and things like that from from elsewhere, there's less need to rely on the, the ancient navigational lore to get from place to place. But unfortunately, uh, it doesn't seem like that's the only cause. It also seems that by the last few centuries, many island groups in the Pacific came to be ruled by foreign empires. And those empires, in many cases, simply forbade travel between islands. Lewis writes in, in one footnote in the book, quote, "...the banning by European administrations of inter-island canoe travel must have been a potent cause of navigational decline. Voyages were forbidden, for instance, in the Carolines in German times." Itilon attributed the loss of traditional lore on Neningo to the effect of the old German regulations. Prohibitions remain in force today, and this would have been in uh, 1972, in, among other places, the Tahiti group, and voyaging is strongly discouraged in the Gilberts. Not only must atrophy of knowledge have resulted, but deliberate voyages had to be kept secret. Advent upon another island was invariably attributed to accident." So this seems to be one of the, the detrimental effects of various colonialisms on, uh, on, on the Pacific Islands that it would have led to a steepening decline in the ancient navigational lore and the passing down of this knowledge about how to navigate by the stars and these other signs because there was simply less opportunity for people to navigate to you know go out in the open ocean the way they would have before
1: now it's interesting too though that, that there are exceptions to this uh as well uh, i was looking at this on the that um, uh, Hokulea website and uh, over there they they, dis- they discussed and this is also discussed at um on the website for the for the bishop museum um in, in hawaii uh, on the island of oahu uh, which is an excellent museum about uh, various polynesian cultures and mm. gets into a lot of what we're discussing here definitely worth visiting if you if you make it out to oahu um But but as as, uh, discussed on both of these sources, the art of deep sea voyaging in Hawaii had been extinct for several hundred years uh, before contact with Europeans. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this period of of long voyages ended along with uh, all contact with other Polynesian islands, and they lived in near complete isolation until 1778. Uh, Right. So so that's fascinating as well.
0: Yeah. So there could be a number of causes there. So there's also, there's like, in one sense, you could have a kind of natural atrophy of knowledge. And then there could be some loss of knowledge by, by uh, imposition of colonial rule. And then also some loss of knowledge by the introduction of alternative methods for travel. Yeah. But fortunately, not all the knowledge was lost. And so we have the accounts of, uh, of Lewis doing uh, this firsthand research with, with master navigators like Hippor and, and Tevake. And I was going to get into uh, some of the specifics of of these navigation techniques in this episode, but we're already running kind of long, so I think maybe we should call it there and then come
1: and talk about the navigation
0: techniques in part two.
1: Yeah, the how to read these environmental cues and engage in environmental navigation, and then and then also some of the the, the history of proving it out, and then what the, what that those experiments those. Uh, uh, the, those those voyages uh, proved about history itself. So join us next time as we continue to discuss this topic. Uh, in the meantime, if you would like to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you'll find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. And that can be uh, found wherever you get your podcasts. We just ask that wherever that happens to be, just rate, review, and subscribe if you have the power to do so. We we greatly appreciate uh, you know, anyone who does that. That, that helps us out. Uh, love a good star rating. Love a good support subscription. Uh, keep it. Up. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth
0: Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.
3: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app.